Hello, 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 hello. Both say hello. 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 <laughs> there we go. Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Denise Barron. Today, we're diving into a piece of research that started out as one thing, but ended up as another. I wasn't setting out to look for rural attitudes toward cities. That's Professor Kathy Kramer. And we'll introduce her in more detail in a little bit. But at this point, what you need to know is that this research that we're talking about today, this work which Kathy has been working on for nearly a decade, picks up on one of the deepest and most politically significant divides in contemporary society. The gulf and resentment between rural and urban communities. And this idea of resentment. It's a term that I think carries a lot of negative connotation, but I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't start with that. I sat down with Kathy when she was in London, and today I'm very happy to have a fellow Midwesterner. I'm Denise, and I heard how a, an unconventional method of listening helped her dive deep into the rural-urban divide. So, Kathy Kramer is a professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And she's also the director of the Morgridge Center for Public Service. Morgridge? Uh, Morgridge. So it's Morgridge. like lots of R's in there. Morgridge. Yeah. Morgridge. Yeah. And on top of that, Kathy is also the author of a number of books. So today we're focusing on... The Politics of Resentment, colon, social science, colon, I should say, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, rural Consciousness and the Rise of Scott Walker. Right. And Scott Walker, for those people who don't know, is currently the governor of Wisconsin. He was elected governor in 2010. If that name, Scott Walker, sounds familiar, it might be because of the considerable conflict between Governor Walker and the labor unions in Wisconsin in recent years. That's right, right. Yes, and uh, led to a recall election, which he survived and was the first governor in the U.S. to do so, and he's been reelected once, too. And then he, he ran for president, started to run for president of the United States, but... Um, dropped out of the Republican primary. Right, right. Okay, so let's jump into your to the research that went into this book. What's the context for it? Where did you begin? And, and we'll get into your methods, I guess, sure. as we talk about that. Well, I started back in 2007, and, and I was looking for how people understand politics um, with their social class identity. Um, you know, social class is... is been much more meaningful here in the UK than in the US, or at least we tell ourselves sure, in the US. Sure. But in fact, it's pretty important to people's political opinions. So I was really interested in how people use their social class identity to make sense of politics. And I've just decided over the course of my career that a really good way for me to, to study political understanding is to listen to people talk to one another. And so what I did was to sample a variety of communities across the state of Wisconsin, mm. which led me to... Um, realize that there's a big rural versus urban split in Wisconsin and around the nation, but it wasn't what I started looking for. So that's my why I give the long answer to explain it. I wasn't setting out to look for rural attitudes toward cities. Yeah. And so you went out into the rural communities in particular. Yeah. So, yeah. So that that's right. That Madison and Milwaukee are definitely the two big cities in the state, but I had sampled communities, 27 communities across the state which meant that I was in a lot of smaller communities, too. Right. Um, 
and again, not intending to, to focus on how uh, attitudes are different there or how people make sense of politics differently in those types of places. But yeah, it just meant that I was well outside the Madison and Milwaukee, yeah, Madison and Milwaukee metro areas a lot of the time. Right outside of the urban bubble. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah. And did you did you do interviews with voters? Is that or did you? Do... I didn't. Yeah, yeah. I I honestly, there's no uh, label for what I did. Sure. What I did was to ask people, um, either local newspaper editors or people affiliated with the university who are actually housed in each of the 72 counties in the state. Um, our, there's our extension, university extension offices, and I asked them where do people gather on a regular basis that I could get access to, just groups of regulars. I'm not sure right. what the equivalent term would be yeah. here, but you know, people who get together usually every day, usually over coffee, to just visit and share the news and then move on with their day. Yeah, and so the term sometimes a, a common term that's used in Wisconsin, Wisconsin has quite a German heritage, is mm. coffee clutches. People say right. coffee clutch, you know. So I I wasn't assembling these groups of people, and it was more than one person, except on one occasion, I think. Um, so they're not really focus groups, right? Right. But I was I was nevertheless leading the conversation at points, but trying to step back and just listen as much as possible too. So so the word resentment really jumped out to me from from yeah. your research. Can you tell me a little bit about how you define resentment? Sure. In my mind. Um, and I should acknowledge it's it's a term that I think carries a lot of negative connotation, but I don't I don't necessarily I don't start with that. Uh, wh- what I start with is that it's a term that captures a feeling of um, not getting your fair share, mm. a, a sense of injustice, or a sense that you've been wronged somehow. Right. And I think it's a really politically important um, sentiment because when you when you when you notice injustice, it's kind of a first step towards it being politically relevant. If you just think something is a personality conflict or about you as an individual, you have a different reaction to it typically, right? But when it's a sense that like something systematic is going wrong here, that means I'm on the I'm just not getting my fair share, right. then then you're likely to it's more likely to have some type of policy implication. And it seems to me from from that understanding of resentment that it, it inherently has someone at the other end of it right and well, that that that's a natural you know if someone's resentful it's towards something or towards another group of people or yeah anything. yeah it's just, yeah like you've been wronged by some force right. right and not so it's not just a twist of fate or something happening by chance yeah and i think that's really important politically too because when people have a target of blame in mind that can be mobilized. Right, right. So so tell me a little bit about what role you've seen resentment play in recent elections in particular. Sure. Well, I'll talk briefly about um, Scott Walker, just because it's so instructive for how this works. But then um, it, it mattered a lot in the 2016 presidential election, too. Sure. So with Scott Walker, um, one thing that happened in, in that, in his initial election, and then throughout his term as governor, is that he... Um, told people that one of the reasons that they were struggling to make ends meet was that so much money was going to public employees and that he he characterized and in his terms called the public employees the haves and private employees the have-nots. And that was a way for him to say, you're right, you are not getting your fair share and you know what, here's a group of people that's getting more than their fair share. And for him as a very small government Republican, 
it was an effective way for him to both mobilize people's resentment and then once in office justify policies like the Act 10 policy that you referred to in which he basically undercut um, collective bargaining among almost all public employee unions, eliminated it, and also required public employees to pay in so much more to their health care and pension benefits. So um, in Madison, where there's a lot of state workers, it was hugely unpopular, but the way resentment worked in th- that election and in his recall election and subsequent um, re-election was by him mobile, using that resentment to, to focus people's anger at a particular target, right, right? Right, yeah. And then in the presidential election, I mean, Donald Trump is a very different candidate from sure. Scott Walker, and even their platforms are quite different. Um that that seems to have changed a little bit since Donald Trump's been in office. But anyhow, um, Donald Trump mobilized on resentment, too, because and obviously not just to folks in Wisconsin, but across the country. He also said, you're right to be so upset and you are getting the short end of the stick or you're not getting your fair share. And you know what? It's the fault of these people. And his targets of blame were different. He wasn't talking so much about public employees on the campaign trail, but immigrants, Muslims, um, kind of veiled references to people of color, people that he portrayed as getting more attention, more resources um, than they should be. Um, and that, uh, in the in both in that message and in the way. He spoke to people. It was a it was mm-hmm. a way of kind of saying, I I hear what you're saying. And I'm on your side. Yeah. Yeah. Really putting that mm-hmm. group dynamic yeah. at the forefront and, and mobilizing right. off of that. Right. Yeah. Like drawing very clear us versus them lines. Yeah. Right. So so if we're I mean, it's clear to any observer of American politics, a, a participant or um or someone who's who's studying it, it's pretty clear that this is a strong, potent Thing in, the, in the zeitgeist of American politics at the moment. How did this arise, especially yeah. in, in rural society? And I, I mean, where where did this idea of the liberal yeah. elites come from? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a fascinating question. And I think um, the way I explain it to myself is I think as with any aspect of culture, there's probably a lot of different sources, right? And so it's sure. not... It wasn't one politician getting this ball rolling, um, but it I think it has something to do with political rhetoric and people picking up on the, the kind of the lines, the us versus them battle lines that have been drawn in campaigns over time. Um, and I'm thinking especially since uh, the 70s, um, and I say the 70s because I think part of this resentment, it's a really important source of it is growing economic inequality and is the reality of people having a really hard time making ends meet. And in rural areas in particular, I mean, that is true for people across the board in the United States, right? Except for the very wealthiest that um, wages just are, you know, worth less than they were in the 70s. And the gap has been growing um, because those on the upper end of the income scale have just been making so much more income than everyone else. Yeah, and so exponentially yeah, more. Absolutely, yeah. And everybody's feeling the stretch. Right. So I think that's one of the sources too. But then I think the changes in the economy and the way jobs have changed and disappeared in a lot of rural communities mm-hmm. um, has also contributed to fe- people feeling like something is wrong here, right? That I am 
working really hard and I'm doing the jobs that people in this very community used to be able to do and live a good life. Mm-hmm. And so something something is off, right? I should be having a better life. And so it's changes in jobs and the in nature of jobs and the economy. And also I think in the nature of technology in that people um, have have the ability to recognize that there is wealth in society sure. and oftentimes sure, it appears yeah. like it's urban like it's sources like the people with a lot of money the good paying jobs are all in the cities and i think all these different streams and there's others as well are contributing to people's perception that people like me in places like this are getting a raw deal right right so it's come from a lot of different angles i think yeah, that, that it makes a lot of sense. I, um, I, I'm reminded of a piece of pop culture insight from my brother, actually. And yeah. he was pointing out how uh, people from, from small towns like, like where we grew up yeah. um, see the urban-rural divide from, from the same perspective that is best illustrated in a movie like The Hunger Games, oh. where you have the urban elites that are obsessed with these strange topics and these strange fads and strange fashions and not focus on the same things that are just difficult in daily life outside of the capital and so that when when he pointed that out a couple of years ago it really made me look at things a little bit differently i'm interested if you see this resentment from the other side because you said you didn't set yeah. out to study just rural politics right. that so you talked to some um urban dwellers as sure, well for sure and did you see the same type of resentment on that end of the spectrum um yes and no so yes in that it's definitely definitely the case that people in our cities are feeling like something is really off here, right? That I'm struggling really hard to make ends meet, and it seems like no one's listening to me, and my community is not getting a whole lot of respect. Mm-hmm. But it's different in that um, the way people were interpreting public policy and just their own situation in life wasn't through the lens of, because I am a city dweller, Right. You know, it's almost as if, um, as with a lot of kind of marginalized um, identities, it's when when you're of the kind of the dominant identity, Mm -hmm. it's less prevalent. But that's not to say that there aren't. I think in the cities, the neighborhood is more meaningful than like that I'm an urban person as opposed to rural folks. Do you know what I mean? So that particular lens wasn't there. Um, but certainly a sense of injustice and a sense that the political system is off and not responding right. to people like me was there for sure. Yeah. What are what are the key findings? Like, what are the implications yeah. that need to be out there to inform discussions on rural politics in particular? I would say one one um, the one that's at the top of my mind isn't necessarily related to rural politics, but just the way we think about public opinion in the U.S. in general, and that's that. People's um, people's social identities are so important, and that's that's obvious. And many people have been saying that for years. But yet, in the study of public opinion, especially when we get to elections, we're often so attuned to um, people's uh, partisanship hmm. um, that we forget that so many other aspects of who people are matter a lot for the votes. And partisanship, as I understand it, is very much a social identity too. Sure, sure. But people's sense of um, who they are in terms of their their rootedness to particular places 
is way more meaningful than we normally get at through national sample public opinion polls, just because right. it's, it's harder to do with that type of data, right? But I think a lot of times when people are thinking about um, whether a candidate resonates with someone like them, the someone like them has a lot to do with where they're from, right? right. And we know that in, in casual interactions, like we ask each other, Moments yeah. after meeting each other, where are you from? It's very meaningful, right? Right, right. It's meaningful both for figuring out who people are, but it's also very meaningful for people to understand themselves and who is going to get people like them, right? Yeah, it's such so, an oft, it's such a, a reoccurring frame that you see pollsters use of, do you think that this candidate cares about people like you, or do you yeah. think that this party represents values for people like you? And yet, and while they're measuring that attitude, they're not measuring all that contributes to a sense of right. people like you, what that even means. Yeah, and I think it's kind of hard to do through polls. Too, sure. Which is, I think another implication of my work is that I think we all too often equate public opinion with what polls are measuring. Right. You know, and polls are super important and super useful. Um, but they, I think the best illustration is to say, um, the people that I spend time with in these coffee clutches, if they say one thing in that group context and then a pollster calls them up that evening at home and they say something different with like they they give a slightly different policy preference on a, in a, on a particular policy area, what's more real, mm. you know? And not, I mean, both are a, a snapshot, a particular take on how they feel about politics, but the poll that you know responding to a stranger over the phone in in a format that's totally unfamiliar right. is not necessarily more real than what they say with the group of people that they hang out with every morning you know yeah yeah and it so, and also i mean when one of the difficulties of polls trying to measure something like this is that the pollsters the people writing it don't necessarily know all the options of how that answer could be expressed yeah. Yeah. and so Sometimes you get answers to a poll that say, oh, clearly people believe this over this. Well, yeah. if those are the two options they're given, they'll pick one. Yeah. But the truth might be more nuanced or farther over to the left or right, farther away from the answers given that provided that just doesn't get measured right. in a quantitative approach, basically. Right. Yeah. Given your understanding of resentment and how that functions in, in political attitudes right now and, and in rural societies in particular... What does this mean for American politics moving forward? Is there, is is resentment going to continue to play a big role? I mean, I hate to yeah. ask you to predict something, but you know, is this is this an element of our of our political dynamic right now that's not going away anytime soon? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's right. I think because it's been shown to be very effective at mobilizing support. Mm. In other words, winning votes. Right. But there's sort of, I, I think along the lines of just what is going to happen in American politics and also just um, kind of worrying about the broader implications for yeah. democracy, you know, because partly I think one thing that's happening is both parties are trying to to and maybe the Democratic Party even more is trying to figure out where do we focus our attention? Does this does the outcome of 2016 mean that now we have to focus more attention on rural areas right. in the U.S. And there's a huge struggle, I think, within the Democratic Party about whether or not they do that, because it's not as if all of our issues in our cities have been solved. You know, right. there's plenty of people right. who are saying, are you kidding me? Like, this, 
this election happens and now the answer is we're going to focus more on white folks in rural areas, mm-hmm. you know, so there's mm-hmm. this tension and I, and I just find it, it's very understandable, but I find it also very troubling because the, why can't the answer be, how do we figure out a way to not sell people on policy by demonizing subgroups of the population? Right. It's just so so negative and cannot be sustainable right because what it what it results in is significant portions of the population having no faith in the system it's um i don't see an end to it anytime soon sure all right well well thank you very much professor kathy kramer for joining us here at the ballpark come back anytime oh thanks (laughs) it's real i'm really honored to be on your show so thanks I'm joined now by my co-host, Chris Gilson. Hi, Chris. Hi. And I'm also joined by Tori Mallet, a PhD candidate here at the London School of Economics. And specifically, she's in the sociology department. So thanks for joining us, Tori. Thanks so much. So you do research specifically on political elites and sort of like their role or their influence in local elections. Is that right? Yeah, kind of. Um, I look at how the dynamics of power flow in political elections, and I find that political elites are a very interesting and useful lens to, to view that shift of power. Right, right. Okay, cool. So given that work on a local elections... Mm-hmm. How have you seen this rural and urban divide manifest itself? Yeah, um, I think that that divide is definitely felt, but I wouldn't say that there's a, an urban consciousness the way um, Dr. Kramer talks about rural mm. consciousness. Um, I think that that probably has to do with the fact that there's a threshold point for identity, and cities tend to be identified with cities. You know, people. People think of themselves as Seattleites or San Antonians, whereas when you're in a rural community, you're rural. The Any kind of animosity that is felt from the urban perspective is directed more at the state level as a whole. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they feel that they're, they're being undermined from a state level, and so, so their feelings about rural communities tend to be filtered through that. Sure. Uh, a good example might be in San Antonio, which is one of the places that I was studying. Um, they passed an LGBTQ non-discrimination ordinance, and that ruffled the feathers of people kind of in the suburbs a bit. And so they went to their state-level legislatures, and then the state passed a law that superseded the city ordinance. Oh, wow. Okay. So so sort of like the state-level government was a way to to exercise or express that frustration then, right? Sort of to go above the city level. Yeah, and that happens in states, I think, that have large rural populations like Texas. You're not going to see that in states like New York, probably. You're not going to see that in states like Washington, um, where the cities really do dominate the state-level power as well. Have you seen this sense of rural resentment that Dr. Kramer talked about? I mean, have have you observed that? And you said that you specifically have been studying San Antonio and Seattle, is that mm-hmm. right? That's right. So, yeah, have you seen this kind of manifestation of rural resentment? I have. Um, I'm a little bit hesitant to call it an urban-rural divide because I think that implies that there's two sides and that's it. I think it's much more of a spectrum. Um, and when you know, 80% of the country lives in an urban place, but that doesn't really represent the fact that more than half of Americans live in suburbia. Right. And suburbia is really that kind of messy 
liminal space where politics really happens because that's really who votes ultimately um and and it's half it's it's more than half of americans uh and who moves to suburbs it's people who want better schools and they want more space they want all the advantages of being a part of an economic center but they also want that kind of simpler life that associates with the rural communities um but they have to drive a lot they use a lot of emergency services to to a degree you know they rely upon these things but they don't maintain that kind of emotional connection with the city center and so when it comes to it they're not going to vote for expanded public transportation they're not going to vote for you know more public housing and things like that they're going to vote for lower property taxes for sure and then they're going to really identify with this sort of nostalgia romanticization of the rural community so they're going to lean right when they vote can i jump in with a with a sort of a geography question with one of my very old hats on you you talk about sort of suburbs reflecting more rural values i think that's that's how i understand it does that hold across the states i mean would a suburb in sort of upstate new york or even a new york suburb would that be the same as one as in california or as one as in the south are they all i mean you talk about them being liminal spaces are, are there differences across these yeah i think there's a lot of difference across them and i'll just take san antonio as an example north san antonio is predominantly white south san antonio is pre- predominantly latino and the, uh the rural communities around northern san antonio are also predominantly white and mm-hmm. the rural communities around south san antonio are predominantly latino and you'll see them voting with each other uh south san antonio votes democrat and the rural communities there vote democrat and vice versa um so i think that Yes, they lean towards who's outside the city more than in towards the city. It's probably a better way to put it. So that that kind of reminds me of one of the things we talked about when I when I spoke with with Kathy Kramer. She she went into how she observed and came to define this sense of rural resentment, her her research methodology basically. Mm-hmm. And you know, she went out to these coffee clutches. I'm just curious how you've set out to to study the, these local elections, what sort of methods you use? Yeah, um, so I interviewed political elites in these different cities, and that really varied depending on the city. Um, so in Seattle, it was a little bit more straightforward. We're talking about political consultants, uh, people who've worked on campaigns for a long time, elected officials themselves, right. um, union leaders, political directors, um, activist groups, uh, grassroots activist groups, but also, you know, higher level groups like, you know, traditional ones like environmentalists or choice. Um, and then also the business community. Uh, in San Antonio, because they don't really have unions in the same way, uh, it was mostly business community folks uh, and zoning lobbyists. And so you're saying that the landscape in, in Texas was quite different. The landscape in Texas was very different, and I would venture to say much more like the rural communities that Dr. Kramer talks about in her book. Um, San Antonio is the most unequal city in America. It's the most economically segregated. It's also the second sprawliest city in America. Um, so on the south side, the communities there really do resemble rural Texas more than anything else. It has about the same level of poverty. It has about the same income. They have food deserts in a city. There's not as much of a rural-urban divide 
there that can be clearly identified. And do you see these patterns of sort of, you know, inequality and that sort of segregation of, of people continuing into the future? And is there any way that these things will change? I hope so. Um, the new city council that was elected this time around is adopting an equity-based financial plan for the city, um, which is new. <laughs> um, and it's a result of a much more progressive city council uh, as a whole that was elected during this cycle. Chris, I'm, I'm curious to hear your reaction to this idea that Tori brought up of more of a, a rural-urban spectrum. Uh, honestly, I mean, that was something I, I hadn't even been thinking about it in those terms. I'd been thinking much more about that perspective from rural communities mm. looking at the big cities and seeing them as getting something unfair, basically, getting their unfair advantage of either resources or just privilege in general over the rural communities. But I mean, like you said, that doesn't even take into account suburbia, right. really. Yeah, I mean, most of the research that's that's come out even relatively recently focuses on the idea of polarization and the polarization of not only politics, but of inequality and the segregation of space. So really poor communities getting larger and clustering and really rich communities and being gated getting larger and clustering. So the suburb is, is a really interesting unit of measure. Mm -hmm. And I think, as you said, you know, it's, it's liminal. They are, and they are different in the, in, in the amongst themselves and compared to other ones. So I think, if anything, they're in probably a new space for research, a new space to look at. But I think it goes back to the question, you know, what, what counts as a suburb? Where is a suburb? How, right. You know, a suburb in, on the East Coast looks very different to a suburb on the West Coast, looks very different to a suburb on the South. Are they rich? Are they middle class? Are they working class? I mean... Also now we are having the rise of more working class suburbs as well as sort of the economy gets hollowed out too. The inner cities are now becoming much more kind of an area for the creative classes, which is completely different to what it was 30, 40 years ago when you had sort of what we used to be called white flight from the cities as well. So I think it's just, I mean, I don't know how you feel about the story, but it, we're sort of seeing a new era, a new kind of time when we should be looking more closely at suburbs and how, how that maps on and where that spectrum is. Yeah, um, I think that, you know, the elites that I spoke to in the city often see the suburbanites as the main hindrance to getting uh, policy done that they want, um, that it is not necessarily the state level, it's not necessarily rural sentiments, but it is people in the suburbs. Is that because, that, as you say, the, the sheer weight of population is with the suburbs? Yeah, I think it is the sheer weight of population. It's also, again, that they're very mobilized to participate politically they have more leisure time um they have the you know they're highly enfranchised and um and they want what they want <laughs> and i would say just they're more conservative you know they have kids yes. they bought a house so they're protecting this asset yes. they're fully invested in the status quo yeah. in a way that rural communities are not uh and in a way that urban communities are not mm. but i wonder if um the, if the suburban identity is as powerful and as motivating in terms of political attitudes as a rural identity or an urban identity is. And perhaps maybe that's because they're at two ends of the spectrum and so they sort of see yeah. each other as, as, you know, as their opponents or whatever on each side. But um, yeah, I'm just, kind of, I'm just kind of skeptical that that suburban identity is as much of a motivator. I agree. And I think that's kind of what I was getting at when I was saying that the reasons why they moved to the suburbs, it's not to be a part of a community. It's 
it's very operational. It's very instrumentalist in okay, in yeah. its motivating motiv- motivating factors. Um, and I, of the people that I talked to, the ones who m- were most likely to talk about their identity as casually, the ones who really framed the conversation in terms of identity, were the people who were most invested in the in the city centers. They would say things like oh, that's just how we Seattleites are, or, you know, that's the San Antonio spirit. Um, People who operated primarily in the suburbs did not talk like that. Right, they didn't express that same identity, that, like, clear-formed... No, it was much, much more instrumentalist, much more transactional in their approach to government. I mean, uh, this may be too specific a question, but the people you spoke to in the suburbs, had they been from... How long have they lived there? Have they sort of, been, you know, have they been there for years? Yeah, have they moved know. from a different part of the city or a rural area? Because that's interesting mm. in terms of identity. Because I would expect someone who's been in the suburbs, if they've existed for sort of thirty or forty years, to feel more like they were a Seattleite or mm-hmm. or what have you. Whereas if someone who's just moved from another part of the country, and of course Americans are so very mobile, especially compared to Europeans and and people in the UK, they would have a much more, as you say, instrumental mm-hmm. kind of point of view in terms of bettering themselves rather than having a real innate sense of community. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what I'm saying right now is filtered through, you know, political consultants and kind of what they told me about the nature of voting in the city. So I don't know all of the, sure. <laughs> the demographic sure. details of the people, but um, but generally that's kind of how they approach the different groups. Those are that's how they write their mailers is to appeal to those kind of things. Um, the mayoral election just happened in San Antonio over the summer and. In the suburban communities, uh, they were mailed information about the crime rate in San Antonio, primarily skyrocketing. Mm. It was not affecting suburban communities in any way at all. But they right. used that language to, to motivate them to vote because you want to keep that crime in the city, not coming out here. So I'm glad you brought up elections. I wanted to get back to um, not just your focus on elections, but sort of like the impact that this if it's not a divide, the spectrum has on Mm. elections. So do you think that there are local and national um, elections coming up in the next few years that are going to be impacted by this this dynamic? Um, I do. I think that cities really do see themselves right now as this vanguard uh, of resistance against what they see as a a national wave of injustice or lack of empathy. Um, And so I I don't know how it's going to actually affect the 2018 elections, for example, just because I think that gerrymandering, political gerrymandering is at the point where you have to win your primary to right. win. Right. Um, and you have to be pretty purist in your convictions. Yeah, the low numbers being right. s- districts is just makes it where things aren't going to move massively, Yeah, especially in a midterm like this in Congress. So. But the people that are being elected right now at the local level are very vocal and they're very ideological they're very anti-trump and they have that record now and those are the people that they're going to be drawing from for the national and statewide elections in two four five ten years and so i know it sounds a bit sad but i think that we may be looking at an even more polarized (laughs) national (laughs) set of elected so um yay that's a a, that's a nice hopeful (laughs) hopeful note to end on i think that just about wraps everything up so thank you tori for joining us thanks chris for being here as well yeah thank you and that's it for this episode of the ballpark 
A big, big thank you to Kathy Kramer and Tori Mallet. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron. That's me. With contributions from co-hosts Sophie Donzelman and Chris Gilson. And also with help from the LSE's annual fund. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rear Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. They're wonderful. We just, they're just so wonderful. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Next month at the ballpark, we're looking into the opioid epidemic that's gripping the country. Thanks for listening. 